Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter number 44. Isaiah chapter number 44, and we're going to begin here with the first six verses, uh, and then we're going to back up into chapter 43 just for a moment. Uh, but Isaiah chapter number 44, and in verse number one, the Bible says there, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeserun, whom I have chosen. Jeserun simply means the upright one. It's the term of endearment and description for Israel. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. I am beside me. There is no God. I want to speak this morning on the, this thought, water is for the thirsty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again for our time together. I pray that you'd bless it. I pray that you'd help us to understand, uh, Lord, what it is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and that you'd draw us close to yourself. In Jesus' name, and amen. You know, in the nation in which we live, most of us will never come to a point where we understand biblical thirst. The, the way that thirst is used here and hunger is used to describe our desire for God or lack thereof. We don't fully appreciate because we're so privileged in our, in our country, really in the whole of the continent of North America. Uh, that water is generally speaking readily available. Unless you're in a remote area or somewhere that's cut off and isolated, uh, at thirst to most of us is, I'm a little thirsty, I think that I'll run to Sonic or I'll duck in here or I've got a water bottle handy uh, and we take some water. Uh, our mouth may get a little bit dry at times if we're out working, you have to wait for a break and uh, you may get a little, you know, feel a little cotton mouth and things like that. But but we're not in danger, we're not in trouble, uh, we're not in despair. Uh, what we're talking about here when we see where Israel has been and what God is trying to communicate, he, he refers back, referring back to chapter 23, he says, remember in verse 18 in chapter 43, uh, remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And verse 21, he says, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. And so God, as we come into chapter 44, is bringing them forth, pointing out to them, listen, you know me, you know the right things to do, you know what my expectations are, 
you know how to worship, you know the system of worship, and we don't have time this morning to go back to the first chapters of Isaiah, but if you want to jot that down and go back to just chapter 1 and chapter 2, what you'll find is this, is that Israel was worshiping God in the way that God told them and commanded them to worship, but the worship that they offered was an unacceptable sacrifice. It was an unacceptable form of worship, not in the mechanics of it, but because they were unclean and they were insincere in their offering of it. And so what they offered up was unacceptable to God. And Isaiah the prophet comes and lays out for 39 chapters God's coming judgment of their sin and pointing out where they needed to correct themselves and where they needed to grow and the areas in which they repent and uh, the judgment that was going to come upon the nation. And then in the final 27 chapters, uh, not that he doesn't refer back to some of those things, he begins to proclaim the goodness of God and the restoration that's going to come to the nation after the judgment has fallen and, uh, and lifts them up. And thus Isaiah becomes really a microcosm of the entirety of Scripture. 39 chapters uh, of judgment, essentially, uh, and prophecy dealing with the what the Old Testament and then 27 chapters of New Testament and what God is doing and, and a Messiah, coming Messiah and things of that nature and all that that would be. So he comes to them and then in verse 25 he calls out, uh, or let's back up to verse number 24, chapter 43, thou hast, brought, uh, thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me not in remembrance, or put me in remembrance. Let, me, let, let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. <coughs> and so he's proclaiming here again, uh, and reminding them of this judgment in uh, as he prepares them for the restoration that's available and that can come. And so when he's coming here and he's saying, listen, you've offered... But you've not offered sincerely. You've wearied me with your sins. You want me to come and to, and to serve you. You want me to bless you. You want me to uh, put you in places of honor. Uh, but yet you come worshiping me in your sin. And you want me to dismiss it. And to everything uh, to just seem okay. And he says to them, yet now here in chapter 44. Yet now here. He said, this is all of the things that we justify in our hearts and our minds that, well, God will understand and that's okay. I want to tell you what God understands this morning in regards to our sin. He understands that we sin. We want to justify our sin and whitewash our sin and make our sin seem like not such a big deal uh, because it's culturally relevant. But God comes and says, yeah, I understand. I can't tell you how many times over the last 25 years I've had someone come and say, uh, hey, pastor, uh, do you understand and know uh, that, that, or, or that, you know, I've got this and I, I know that I know that this is wrong. I know that this is a, a bad thing in my character. I know this, but God understands. As if to say God excuses and he's okay with it. But God's not okay with it. God will forgive it. And the Holy Spirit will convict it. But he's not okay with it. 
Does God understand? Yes, he understands that we sinned. And because we sinned, Jesus Christ had to come and he had to be born of a virgin and he had to live on the earth and he had to offer himself a sacrifice and he had to die and go into a grave and conquer death and hell and rise again three days later. That's what God understands. And it doesn't matter how much we justify it, it's still that vile to God because it cost him his son. And it caused them suffering and shame on our account. And he says, yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee with the, in the womb, from the womb, which, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeserun, thou upright one whom I have chosen. He said, what is he appealing here? He's appealing to those that would be upright of heart. He's not really, in this case, appealing to the community at large, but to those that are thirsty. He's, he's crying out to those that are searching for truth, for righteousness, for something substantive. And he says, and he makes that plea to Jeserin, whom I have chosen. And then he makes the statement, for I will pour water on him that is thirsty. The converse of that is true. I'm not going to waste water. On him that is not. Not saying that the gospel doesn't go out to everyone. It does. I'm saying that there's something and there's great truth to seek me and I will be found. We find God when we seek him. We find him when God is, when the Holy Spirit draws us. And we seldom understand. And I preached a message some weeks ago about, about how we tend to define the things in life by our experience of those things. Uh, I, I, that particular message was up upon love. And we define, oftentimes, in my opinion, God's love for us in the way that we love, and the love that we've experienced from our families, from our parents, from uh, our pastors, from our teachers. That's not a true de definition or picture of the love of God. And I think sometimes that that translates also to issues like this. Where we think of, hey, if, I, if I'm thirsty for God. When I came in from outside yesterday, I was a little thirsty. I was looking for a bottle of water. I was looking for uh, maybe a glass of tea. Uh, and I had a little bit of thirst, but not, not this kind of thirst. Several years ago, in the Utah desert, there was a, I, I don't know that it even exists anymore, but there was a survival uh, outfitter that, they went by the acronym BOSS uh, and the, the, the layout of that, the, the terminology or the, what it represents doesn't really matter. Uh, but it was a 28-day survival course. And it wasn't an easy thing to get into, nor was it cheap. As a matter of fact, uh, back in the early 2000s, it cost over $3,000 to, uh, to participate in this particular course. And uh, the course was designed uh, in survival mode to get by on, uh, on very little uh, and to know what it's like to uh, kind of suffer and, uh, and, and move oneself along. As a matter of fact, on their website, they said that this course is intended to push people past those false limits that your mind has set for your body. And that's kind of a, an, an ignorant statement because God trained our bodies to cry out for what it needs. It's not a false limit. It's a real limit. And we might be able to push those limits and learn how to survive uh, beyond those limits to some degree, but, uh, but to say that they're false is, 
uh, really not a good way to assess that. So people sign up for this and they pay their money and they go through the screening and they have to go to the doctor and have a doctor sign off on their conditioning and their health to be able to, uh, to participate and, uh, and to go about it. And there was a particular man, uh, he was 29 years old, he was an Air Force veteran. He, uh, when he got out of the military, he worked in government security for uh, different agencies for a while. And he wanted to go through this course and uh, he was from New Jersey. His name was Dave Bouchow. Uh, and he, uh, he went to the doctor, he filled out the application, he paid the fees, he uh, got signed off by the doctor and he, uh, and he took off and he joined 11 other people in his class that were going to go through this 28 day course in which they were told you're going to be pushed to the limits, you're going to lose up to 20 pounds over this 28 days, uh, you're going to go out with basically a, a knife, a compass, a cup and a, a couple of other items, you're not allowed to take water bottles, you're not allowed to take food. Food. Part of it is learning how uh, to survive and to live off of the land, even in the uh, in the desert and and pl 100 degree plus heat. And so he went. When they got there, they assembled, they met. One of the people that were part of the uh, of his group had ridden a bicycle all the way from Maine to Utah. And so he bicycled there. Others flew in and came by more normal people in terms of, of transportation uh, and they got there and they gathered and the guides assembled them and they began to lay out the course and explain what they were going to do uh, at least some of what they were going to do and uh, and they they put them through the test they made them run a mile and a half course so that they could assess their fitness level and uh, know where everybody was at the fellow that bicycled from Maine said Dave Bouchard wasn't in the best shape in the group but he also wasn't in the worst shape in the group so he was kind of uh, in, a, in a decent condition uh, to be able to go out and to, uh, to do this course. So they set out and for the first several days it's difficult and uh, they would let them have a little bit of things and kind of gradually wean them off and uh, they'd give them maybe water in the morning and then they weren't allowed to get water unless they could find some on their own uh, until later in the evening and they would go about the course and, uh, and just push themselves. His David Bouchow in his application said, Although in the years since, talking about after his time in the Air Force and working at uh, security at U.S. bases abroad, he said, I've continued to appreciate Mother Nature, he wrote by hand, and I still haven't ever truly immersed myself in her embrace. I fear that I'm becoming a comfort camper, having never come close to looking her in the eyes. In other words, he's saying, I want to push it to the limit. But sometimes when you push it to the limit, you pay the ultimate price. Dave Bouchard went about their thing and as they're going through the training and they're in and they're in a rigorous part and <coughs> the sun is beating down and he's getting more and more dehydrated and, uh, and the guides are trying to push them on and he begins to collapse at times and uh, they get him back up and the other camper said every time that he would fall and get up some, he, he took energy from everyone and at times it was so bad that he would try to walk the wrong direction. He was beginning to hallucinate uh, and to have conversations with people that weren't there. He was beginning to ask about uh, the air traffic that was going overhead that wasn't going overhead and if anyone had uh, a mirror that they could uh, that they could signal the pilots and try to get their attention so that they uh, could get some help and yet the guides pushed them on. One of the men that was in the party wrote this, the first point that I uh, got really 
concerned about him was during a break when he mistook a tree for a person. He said, there she is. As they pressed on and the delirium uh, began to set in, they just pushed him. His companions by this point were carrying his possessions for him. And they were getting close to the end of the track for that day. And as he collapsed again and they uh, got him back up and then he collapsed again, the guide uh, went out there to his aid uh, or at least to check on him. Uh, they just kind of stood there about 200 feet away uh, and, and watched it for a little bit before they went to check. And uh, as the guide went out, uh, he sat there with him for a little bit and then he looked back over again and realized that he had stopped breathing. He had fallen face down in the floor, less than 200 feet from water. And the guide had emergency water in his pack and never offered it. They realized there was no breathing. They began CPR. They climbed a juniper tree to get a signal out to try to get help. It took 90 minutes for a helicopter to arrive and no amount of CPR or defibrillation without an IV and any other kind of mechanisms were going to save David Bouchal's life. And as the group of 11 with their few guides gathered around, they received the news that David Bouchal had died. Many of them just canceled the rest of their trip. A few of them saw it through to the end. But that young man died because he was thirsty. And what it all boils down to is an understanding of what does it mean to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. I wonder this morning how many times in my life I've actually come to a place where I truly, truly thirsted for God. Not where I was hot, tired, stressed, and needed a drink, but where I was in distress so often we find ourselves spiritually distressed, but never looking for that life-giving water. Never looking for the water of life that Jesus offers. We have to understand this morning that thirst, thirsting for God in such a way, willing to make it to the end of the service and having to leave and preaching because I hit the fountain and get a sip of water. Good. Nobody's in here. Nobody's out there right now, so I'm not picking on anybody. Okay. But I can see you when you do it because the water fountain's right there and the doors are. First is desperation. Webster defines thirst as a vehement desire. When's the last time that I had a vehement desire for God's word? The last time I had a vehement desire for God's person. The last time. I had a vehement desire for the fellowship of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Last time I had a vehement desire uh, to know the will of God for my life and to, to honor with my life and my direction. I just want to point out a few things that I believe are important to our lives that uh, that we have to that that we should be and that not, and we recognize that I, some of us this morning are going to say, you know, Pastor, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not thirsty like that. Because every Christian should be desperate for God in such a way. Amen. Every Christian should long uh, for God to work in, uh, in such a way. And I want to start this morning by saying that we should be thirsty for salvation. 
thirsting for salvation. If you're here this morning and you're not sure whether or not you would go and stand before Christ, uh, that you are saved whenever you die and leave this earth, that your sins are forgiven and that he is your father and that you have a personal relationship with him, then your greatest thirst this morning should be for Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and become your savior. When you seek for that truth, he's seeking for you. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He's not leaving us out there to wonder and to wander. He wants us to know the truth of the gospel, to come to Christ, to seek his forgiveness, to recognize that he is God incarnate, that he was virgin born without a sinful nature, that he walked in sinless perfection upon this earth, that he offered himself a sacrifice on Calvary's cross to pay for my sin that I could not pay on my own, that he conquered death and hell and rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and is preparing a place for us, even as we're here this morning, and praying for us along the way. That's our Savior. Why would we not thirst for that? My friends, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, would I go to heaven if I died? May I say to you, get thirsty for the truth. He loves you. He gave himself for you. He's longing to embrace you. He's longing to give you that new birth to bring you into his family that he might at some point bring you into his presence. That be thirsty for God. God, it doesn't matter what you give me. I just want you. It doesn't matter where I live. It doesn't matter where I serve. It doesn't matter what job you want me to work. It doesn't matter who you want me to talk to as long as I have you. So often we get caught up in the, uh, in the do's and the don'ts and the ins and the outs of ministry and service and, uh, and relationships and we lose focus on the actual object of our faith and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Am I thirsty for him this morning? In John chapter 4, we see the woman at the well in verses 6 through 14. And again, we'll not turn there for sake of time, but Jesus is so desperate. She's so desperate for help and she's so longing for truth. And she doesn't even understand truly what she's longing for. And Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, fellas. I know that we usually go that way, but today I have to go through Samaria. Samaria. But Jesus, that's on the wrong side of the tracks. What will people say? Well, if you think that people are going to talk because we're going through Samaria, just put your seatbelt on because they're really going to, you're really going to worry about who, uh, who, what people are going to say when you see who I'm going to go talk to. And he goes the heat of the day to the well because the poor woman can't even go when everybody else draws in the cool of the day because no one will treat her right and she'll be mistreated and abused if she goes then and she'll just leave feeling worse than she was. And so she goes when no one else is going to be there and she's longing, she's searching for truth and she doesn't even understand exactly what that means. But Jesus goes out of his way to come to her. And the whole city ends up turning to Christ for many because of her longing, her thirst for truth. She asked him, you're asking me for water? He says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me. I have living water. My friends, this morning, what we need is living water. So pastor, I'm already saved, I already have that living water. Perhaps you need a fresh drink this morning. Perhaps I need a fresh touch from the Lord. Perhaps I need to get thirsty for my Savior. Secondly, I'd say this morning that we should be thirsting for substance. When you look here at 
He says, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I, you see, we shouldn't just desire salvation, but a meaningful, purposeful Christian life. I don't need Lord Jesus just to sip. I want the whole well. I don't need enough to sustain me in this moment, to revive me in this moment. I need a source that's going to carry me through life. I need help. I need a longing in my heart. I need a Savior that can come. And yes, I need to be saved in this moment of desperation. But I don't need to be saved in a moment of desperation and be left here to just get back in the same condition that I was found in. I need to be rescued, not just in the moment, but for a lifetime. Don't just bring me water and leave me at the cave. Bring me water and carry me out of the canyon and set my foot upon the rock. Thirsting for salvation. Thirsting then for substance. We need this morning a substantive love. One of the great dangers, one of the great tragedies of our culture is the, is the destruction of the nuclear family. It is, the, it is the devaluation that's been placed on the home that God established. That the home that God uh, put in place and the order of that home that he's put there. Why? Because it tears down our image of genuine love. What love is supposed to look like. How love is supposed to function in a practical setting. And we have to understand uh, that if I'm, uh, if I'm hungering and thirsting for God and for truth, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to long for a substantive life. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter number 3 uh, and verse number 9 that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Coming to repentance, coming to full salvation, coming to knowing who and what God is. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse number 10, uh, we, uh, we read that uh, he tells us, <clears throat> by the which we were sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. I'm saying this morning that that is substantive love. That God's love for us is unconditional. That God did not wait until we had and showed a desire for him before he came to us. But he commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us while we were in our sin so that he could draw us. And by the way, Christian, that didn't end whenever we trusted him and got saved. He wants to love us fully. And he wants that love to be unfailing. Hebrews chapter number 13 uh, and verse number 5. Uh, he tells us, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Uh, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. A love that will not go away. A love that will not turn away. A love that will not abandon. Thirsting for substance. Substantive love. Not only that, we need substantive language. We live in a time where words ring hollow. People don't say what they mean and they don't mean what they say. They'll say what you want to hear and then change the terms when you turn around or you're not paying attention or they think that you're not. Listen, we don't need, uh, we don't need people uh, trying to redefine what the Word of God is. We need just to trust the Word of God as He's given it. Amen. Substantive language, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
in verse 16 tells us all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. It's given. God gave it. It was given by inspiration. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that it's sharper than any any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. I need to be carved up this morning. My, my daughter, Sarah, not the one that got married yesterday, but the, other, the older girl, we were, <clears throat> we were driving, Sonia and I were driving, getting, I think we were on our way to do something actually for a wedding. And we were uh, just going into Houston to pick up a couple of things and, uh, and the phone rang and she's, I can hear in her voice, there's kind of like a panic and uh, a desperation and, uh, and, and so, you know, Sonia's trying to discern, is, is, is she being dramatic or is there something really wrong? Uh, and so she's asking a couple of questions and finally we, we get it. Okay, she bought a whole chicken. Uh, that, that's a, a whole chicken. Buying a whole chicken is kind of a lost art. We don't even do that. We, we, I don't like certain portions of the chicken. I'm pretty particular about the parts of it that I like. Uh, and so we don't, if we were to buy a whole chicken, we'd be wasting half of it because I, I'm not going to eat the other half. So we'll buy, uh, you know, the parts that we like. But she decided, she got in her mind, she was going to buy a whole chicken. And so, and, and she's, you know, she's helped mom in the kitchen whenever it's Thanksgiving and you open the turkey up and you got to pluck out the gizzard and a little bit of stuff that they leave in there and, uh, and she's getting ready. But what she bought in this whole chicken, she was not prepared for. And so she's there. And you understand, she has a very weak gag reflex as well. And so it really can be quite entertaining if you're in the right setting. And so, you know, she's, she's in here talking and, uh, and my mom's here this morning from East Tennessee. And I mean, I grew up, she just, she, she gets buy a whole chicken and cut it up and uh, make all kinds of extra pieces out of it somehow and uh, knows what she's doing. And, but, but that, uh, we didn't get that and pass it down. <clears throat> and so here's Sarah with her whole chicken on the phone, gagging, crying, and laughing uh, and being laughed at by us. And so she's trying to figure out, she opens this chicken and it's not just the gizzard that's in there, it's everything that's still in there and it stinks and the neck is still attached. And she's trying to decide what she's going to do with it. She has no clue how to, how to and, and we're nowhere in town to where mom can come to, the, to her aid and, uh, and her rescue. And, uh, and she's just kind of going through uh, all the motions of this and, uh, and trying to figure out. Now I'm trying to figure out why I'm telling the story. Uh, and so uh, she's getting this whole chicken. It's got to be cleaned. It's got to be dressed. It's got to be prepared. It has to serve its purpose. We need something substantive. We need a substantive language. We need words that matter. We need methods that matter. We need a God that matters. We need love that is unfailing. Substantive love. Substantive language. The word of God piercing even to the spirit. That's where I was going. The joints and the marrow. That chicken needed to be cut up. Perhaps I'm here this morning and I feel disconnected from God because I won't let the word of God cut me up. Sometimes we need to be carved up. Why, pastor? Because my heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
The world has convinced us that we should follow our heart. That is the absolute most horrible advice that any Christian could ever follow. Amen. Don't follow your heart. Follow the principles of God's word. Amen. Your heart will deceive you. God's word will not. Let the word of God judge you. Let the word of God shape you. Let the word of God mold you. Let the word of God carve you up. We need substantive language. We need substantive labor. We don't need frivolous labor. Listen, I'm grateful for, uh, there are a lot of folks in our church that come in and volunteer. Some come in during the week and they clean windows and doors and they clean bathrooms and they help with the floors and others come and mow and weed eat and uh, go the extra mile cutting down dead trees and getting ready for, for events and things of that nature whenever the, the need arises. And quite frankly, we just really couldn't function as a church if we didn't have a lot of people that volunteer to come in and uh, do those types of things. That's substantive labor. It may not be high paying in this life, but it's sure racking up some, some a great retirement plan in heaven. Amen. Substantive labor. First Timothy chapter number four and verse number eight. Uh, he says, for the bo for bodily exercises profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. And what we understand and we see that uh, that we have to grasp what God has given for us and uh, embrace it. Second Timothy uh, chapter 4 in uh, verse 11 he says, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Someone that once was turned away and rejected is now profitable for me and the ministry. Don't give up on people. Invest in people and love people and help them grow but be substantive and our labor. Thirdly, this morning, consider that we should be thirsting for satisfaction. Thirsting for satisfaction. The life that Jesus Christ provides for us is a life that should satisfy. There's, there's, if my relationship with Christ is right, nothing is lacking. I will not feel unloved. I will not feel that my needs are not being met. I will not feel unsupported. I will not feel I have to love him and have me satisfied with what God has given me. What I'm saying is, is that genuine, true, full salvation, a relationship in which I'm connected and thirsty for the things of God, and I'm walking in tune and in step with my Savior, will have me to a place uh, where uh, I will be satisfied with my life. I'm not talking about satisfied to the point that we no longer want to grow, but satisfied to a point that we're not miserable feeling as if somehow we've gotten the wrong call. That we've missed what God intended. Be satisfied with life. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul said that I've learned that whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, he said that godliness with contentment is great gain. It is a wonderful thing to know and to be satisfied with my Savior and satisfied with what God is doing in my life. I want to live a life of substance. I don't want to live a life that's shallow. I don't want to live a life that's meaningless. I don't want to live a life that, that's, that's void of purpose. Satisfied with life. I'll be satisfied with my legacy. What God does with my life. See, a person's legacy, a Christian's legacy, a Sunday school teacher's legacy, a bus worker's legacy, a pastor's legacy really is not about the work that they did. It's the lives that God changed along the way. And when we look and we understand that if I am content with God, then I'll be satisfied with my legacy. I want to be satisfied, thirdly, with my longing. I want to be longing for heaven. 
I want to be longing to see people come to Christ. I want to be longing to see people that have drifted away reclaimed by the glory of God. I want to be satisfied with a longing in my soul to see God working in people's lives and hearts. Thirsting for satisfaction. And lastly this morning, we should be thirsting for souls. I will pour water upon him who is thirsty. Isaiah, above all else, is crying out for them to come back to God, to give themselves to him. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. God wants to pour out. We should be thirsty for souls. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean this. I mean that if I truly love God, I will love what God loves. I cannot say that I truly love someone if I don't love what they love. Now, in our interpersonal human relationships, that's not absolute. My wife loves mangoes. I will never love a mango. She loves, she loves mofongo. I'll never love it. I'll never even like it. <laughs> she loves pork chops and rice and beans, and I can put down some pork chops and rice and beans with it. I love chocolate cream pie. She likes it okay, but she'll never love it. But I tell you what, she loves my mom. She couldn't love me and not love my mom. I loved her mom and dad, and they were still living. We, the things that are truly, genuinely important are the bills that you love, you love. Even if it's difficult to love. There are some things in life, there are some people in life that you know, hey, I've got to love this person because it's my family. Or it's my spouse's family. It's, it's not always easy. But it's always right. What I'm saying this morning is that I want to thirst for souls. And the reason is because if I love him, I will love what he loves. Thirsting for souls. Jesus is the savior of souls. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. He said, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 15. Again, uh, he makes that appeal that he's coming. Uh, and he's longing to see people uh, come to Christ. And uh, when he says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptations that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, among whom I am chief. That's the reason that we're here. The reason that Jesus came. The reason for the gospel is that he comes to be the savior of souls. Jesus, secondly, is the lover of souls. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You read on, you find out we were already condemned. We were already in con condemnation. But he came because he loved souls. We come because wisdom demands that he that winneth souls is wise in Proverbs 11.30. So, Pastor, it's, it's getting hot this time. I can't go knock on a door. I can't do this. I understand. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, that 
that everybody can do the same thing in the same way at every moment and every time of the year. I am saying this, if I can't go, I can pray. If I can't go aggressively in that way, I can reach out to someone that helps me at, at, the, uh, at a restaurant or at a gas station. I can be praying and seeking for God to lead me to someone that's willing to listen, that's hungry and thirsting for righteousness, that I might become a Philip to them, that they might become an Ethiopian eunuch to the people in their family and the people in their life and the people in their world. Jesus says, I love people. I love souls. I love man. I want to save and restore mankind. Be thirsty for souls. Thirsty for a life that's satisfying, that only Christ can provide. Thirsty for substance. Don't live a life that's void, that's hollow, that's empty. Don't be chasing after the things of this world. I'm not saying don't enjoy the things of this world that God blesses you with. I'm saying don't make that your purpose in life. Make Jesus your purpose. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, be thirsty for salvation. Thirsty. By the way, Christian, if you're seeing someone, you're with someone, and they're struggling to make it that last 200 feet to the cave, don't stand there like that guide to David Bouchow and say, as he did in his written statement to the police, I just thought he could make it, and I wanted him to push beyond his limits that last 200 feet so he could get rest. We have what they need. This has what we need. Don't live in desperation. Don't live a spiritually dehydrated Christian. Let God give you the living water. Be thirsty for him. Pastor, my life is just empty. Get thirsty. How do I get thirsty? Keep searching. Recognize the problem. I, I promise you this. Because he said, if you seek me, you'll find me. That wherever is missing in your life, whatever is missing in my life, from a spiritual standpoint, if I'll go to God in prayer and say, God, I don't know what's wrong, but if you'll show me, I'll fix it. God, would you make me thirsty? I'm, I'm not serious about the Christian life. I'm interested. I'm not serious because I'm just not thirsty enough. For God, make me thirsty. It's a dangerous prayer. But he'll do it. And when he does, he'll change your life if you let him.